Welcome to the seventh webinar in the 2017 MJHS NHPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. I'm Russ Portnoy from the uh, MJHS Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care, and I'm very pleased today to present the second interdisciplinary case conference. Uh, my team and I today will be discussing a case of pain and substance use disorder in a complicated cancer survivor. Our IDT today um, has four members. Dr. Mara Lugasi is the Senior Hospice Medical Director. Wanda Udelman is the Staff Development Manager. Adam Schoenfarber is the Social Work Team Manager. And Rabbi Charles Rudansky is Director of Jewish Services, all at MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care. These are our financial disclosures. Our model today will be to present the case and then to discuss it uh, in IDT. The patient I will be talking about is a 69-year-old man who has been referred to the palliative care ambulatory practice for persistent pain after cancer treatment. The practice, as I mentioned before, includes a physician, a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain. The model is that the patient comes to clinic in the morning and is seen for 90 minutes by each member of the interdisciplinary team, sometimes together and sometimes separately. At noon, all the new patients who came in in the morning are discussed and an interdisciplinary team meeting. A plan of care and a, an initial plan of care is decided at, at that team meeting and in the afternoon the patient is called to try to engage them in our plan. The case today we hope will reveal um, the scope of palliative care particularly with respect to the survivor population. The question we'll ask is whether palliative care specialists are appropriate professionals to treat problems in the survivor population. We also want to talk about chronic pain uh, as a significant problem after cancer treatment, again, in the survivor population. And we want to talk about the heterogeneity and special issues that characterize this population, including the problem of substance use. Now, when we meet at our IDT meeting at noon after seeing the new, after seeing the new patients in the morning, we review the records that are brought by the patient and sometimes acquired from other uh, professionals prior to the visit. Then we review our own experience with the patient, what we assessed in real time this morning, and then we discuss an assessment and a plan of care. So we'll start now with the review of records. It always begins with the referral note that we get from the patient's uh, primary care provider or specialist. In this case, the referral note comes from the patient's oncologist, and it says the following, please assess persistent pain would appreciate help with management, complex, complex psychiatric and social situation, cancer, not an issue, thank you. The medical records um, have been divided up uh, among the team and I was able to review some of the records from the oncologist's uh, office. And what we learned was that the patient was well until 12 months ago when he developed a painful swelling in his right thigh. Pain, tenderness, and the local swelling progressed. He finally underwent plain radiography, which revealed a 10-centimeter mass consistent with a bone neoplasm in the mid-femur. He was referred to our local cancer center and had an MRI followed by a needle biopsy, and this confirmed a high-grade osteosarcoma. He then underwent a PET scan, which was negative except for the tumor in the thigh. But a chest CAT scan identifies two tiny masses, each about two millimeters, in the base of the right lung. The medical records from the oncologist also provide some limited past history. In those records, it's noted that the patient has a history of alcoholism, but it says no recent use, a history of depression, and a history of hypertension, which the notes say has been well managed. The oncologist notes um, appended to those oncologist notes is a formal report from the tumor board meeting that met to discuss the patient. And the summary note from that tumor board meeting says that the patient has a high-grade histopathology with a workup suspicious for metastatic disease in the lung, would treat the patient as a stage 4A. The note concluded that this is a rare presentation of osteosarcoma because of the patient's age but aggressive management is indicated, and there should be a 60% probability of a long-term survival with aggressive management. The recommendation was for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, 
followed by surgical resection of the primary tumor in the thigh with lymph salvage approach, followed then by adjuvant chemotherapy. Also appended to the oncologist notes were a few notes from the chemotherapy suite staff, uh, including the nurses and one note from the oncologist. The patient was treated with cisplatin and doxorubicin, and he received three courses given in a 21-day cycle. He developed acute toxicities from the chemotherapy, including pancytopenia, nausea, hair loss, fatigue, and a peripheral neuropathy. It is also noted in those chemotherapy uh, suite notes that the patient needed an analgesic for leg pain. He was given oxycodone acetaminophen tablets at the start of chemotherapy and initially took three to four tablets daily. After two cycles of chemotherapy, the notes indicate that the pain lessened and the patient took less medication and finally only required acetaminophen. Now, Dr. Lagasse, you actually have the patient's surgical notes, right? Can yes. You, you want to share those with us? Sure. So based on the records that I reviewed from the patient's inpatient stay, after about nine weeks of chemotherapy, um, there was a preoperative uh, x-ray showing that the bone tumor was significantly reduced in size. Um, so at the time of surgery, almost no viable tumor was found. Uh, following this, the tumor was basically completely resected with clean margins, and an endoprosthesis was used uh, as a limb-preserving technique. Um, additional records from his inpatient stay showed that he had a quite challenging post-operative course, um, notable for multiple complications. Um, he had prolonged bleeding, he had severe anemia, and he also had quite severe pain and distress. He had several days of opiate titration, which were necessary before the patient was comfortable at rest or able to sleep or, or to stand up. Um, he also had inpatient PT, and the notes from this showed that he had limited progress in walking and self-care, and that he would need a prolonged period of, of rehab following his hospital course. Of note, there was also a medical oncology note um, written during this hospital stay, and it showed, noted that the repeat chest CT had showed that the two lung masses were unchanged from the prior study, and that the plan was to commence adjuvant chemotherapy after transfer to the rehab unit using basically the same protocol as the pre-op regimen. Maybe, uh, Wanda, you can uh, talk a little bit about, I know you have the... Uh, well, I just, I just noted that the the you the medical oncologist note has a has a second page there and and I noticed the word depression on that page. Can you read that note to us? What the second? Note oh, does? sure. Yes, yes, I do see it right here. So the medical oncology note also said that the unit nurses actually were concerned about anxiety and depression, and that the patient reported specifically that he's better when his pain is less. So um, they discussed next steps with rehab and chemotherapy. It's noted the patient was optimistic about being cured. Um, the oncologist also noted, I gently reminded him, quote unquote, about the lung lesions and uncertainties ahead. He acknowledged this, but wants to hope for the best. This plan, as noted again, will start chemo during rehab stay. Okay. And Wanda, you have the notes from the rehab unit? Right, right. So while he was there, he did make progress. However, it was really slow. The pain continued to be an issue, which was limiting his progress, as well as the chemo-related fatigue and weakness, some nausea with that. As a result, he also had a lot of problems with the sleeping. Uh, he was again started with the treatment with oxycodone and acetaminophen with so-so response to that, which also limited his progress. Uh, after 12 weeks, they felt that he was able to return home because at that point he was able to walk with the cane and do his self-care independently. Um, however, he continued with pain issues. Uh, so follow-up, he followed up with his primary care in oncology, outpatient physical therapy appointments. Uh, however, the follow-up CT was scheduled for three months later. So still waiting to see what happens with those, with those lung lesions. And, and clearly his pain must have worsened after discharge because he's ended up with us on referral from his oncologist. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, and I'm just seeing a couple of um, outpatient notes here. The orthopedist did reevaluate the patient because his pain got worse in the leg. This is, this is pain uh, very similar to the pain prior to surgery. And the, the orthopedist um, 
evidently was able to reassure the patient that there was no evidence of cancer recurrence, signs of infection, and the endoprosthesis seemed to be stable. Um, I also see an oncologist note here, which basically uh, uh, duplicates what you just said, was written in the rehab unit, that the mm -hmm. disease seems uh, stable and there's no um, evidence that he's medically worsening. Uh, and I think that's probably why they decided to send him to palliative care clinic to to see whether or not we can do something about symptom control and to try to get his function better. So we met with him this morning, and um, I know all of you together spent a good 90 minutes with him. He's a fairly valuable guy. Um, why don't we just start off with the medical review? Dr. Lugasi, you, you, you spent some time with him, right? Sure, yeah. So based on my evaluation, his, his chief complaint was pain in the thigh, which was similar but now more severe than the pain associated with um, his prior diagnosis with, with the tumor and, and the post-op course. And he described the pain as essentially continuous with a deep aching. Um, it was mild to moderate. It was irritating and, and distracting, so it certainly uh, affected him in, in his day-to-day -day functioning. He also noted that it would increase um, after he walked around half a block, and if he sort of rested back and elevated his leg, it would improve. And as I mentioned before, he really felt like this pain was impacting him. He described it as a, as a miserable experience, I think, were the exact words that he used. Um, his limp, he had had this course of PT, but his limp really wasn't improving. Um, his gait was still unsteady, and this was sort of at the point now where, aside from going out for his physical therapy appointments, he was spending basically housebound, uh, spending most of his days sitting in a chair, he was still interacting with his wife, who was, of course, in the home, um, but he wasn't visiting, for example, with friends anymore. In terms of the medications, at this point, he's been using oxycodone acetaminophen, uh, the 5-325, and he's taking two tablets every four to five hours while awake, so at least a few days every day. Um, and he, he noted that each dose reduced the pain to, as he described it, mild for around two hours, but then it would recur, and he's also taking ibuprofen, the total dose is usually uh, 2,400 milligrams per day. That's one. Um, and then in terms oh. of the, the, the prior history, um, when we asked about um, past medical history, he had high blood pressure, uh, he did have a history of alcoholism. Um, he also notably described three episodes of hepatitis in the past. Um, the last was a while ago, 13 years ago, um, he had several episodes of pneumonia, also in the past, and he did have a, a serious car accident in his early 40s, which resulted in a subdural hematoma, uh, which at the time required a, a surgical evacuation. And is it fair to interpret those last bits of history as indicating complications of alcoholism in the past? Yes, um, I think both. The liver disease and, and the, the subdural. And, and the fall. And the fall. Yes. So on his review of systems, um, he has no fever, night sweats, no fatigue. Um, he did lose around 20 pounds during his chemo, but he's now gradually come back to baseline. His appetite is fair at this point. He has some periodic nausea. He's not short of breath, no other chest pain or GI symptoms. He does have this continuous mild tingling of the toes, which is somewhat bothersome to him. And as I mentioned before, a fairly unsteady gait and, and, and the limb. So in terms of his medical status, then, it, it seems that pain is the most prominent problem. Mm -hmm. he ha it seems like he most likely has a significant past history of alcoholism mm -hmm. with some serious complications related to that. Mm -hmm. And his other symptoms, at, at least as, you, as far as you were able to ascertain today, they're limited to just the fatigue and the tingling in the toes, which are, I guess, follow-on from his chemotherapy. And right. Yeah, you agree with all that? Yeah, I think most likely the, the, the tingling and, and the unsteadiness of gait is probably related to both neuropathy and, and some unsteadiness from, from the lymph and the surgical changes as well. So his examination? Right, so on his physical exam, his vitals were normal. He was thin, but not cachectic. He was pale. Uh, when I examined his thigh, which was really the focus of this pain, it was diffusely tender throughout the right thigh. Um, his mid-thigh circumference was uh, 2.5 centimeters larger on the right, so some asymmetry. His scar was 
well healed, but the skin surrounding it was erythematous and quite sensitive um, to even light touch. Otherwise, his general exam was well within normal, normal limits. Um, his neuro exam, though, did show that going along with the sensory symptoms that he described, he had some sensory loss in both feet. He had uh, absent deep tendon reflexes and a gait that I would characterize as both ataxic and, and mildly ataxic as well. Not to belabor this, but if he didn't have his pain problem, then would that neuropathy prevent him from walking? Would he still be so limited functionally with the degree of neuropathy that you saw? My sense of assessing him, he would probably be slightly unsteady, but I think the main component of the, the gait impairment putting him at sort of the reduced risk or going outside functioning is really the, the pain. The pain. Okay. Now, I know we were, um, everybody else saw him for a bit, and he's a complex patient, I can tell from the notes we reviewed before. Adam, do you want to start off and describe some of the psychosocial issues? Sure. You know, I, when I met him, I'd say the last thing that I would say about him is that the cancer is not an issue. It's certainly very forward for him. Um, we talked a little bit about his psychosocial history with his drinking. He began when he was in his 20s, and it escalate, used to escalate it from a social appropriate use into problematic behavior by his early 30s. Um, he was having marital troubles, and he engaged in Alcoholics Anonymous. So he was staying on 12-step groups pretty reliably. Um, over the last three decades, he's had a couple of relapses, but he's had some relatively long periods of recovery as well. One of them was about a year, uh, that was the shortest, and then the longest was for 14 years, which was really great. Um, during that time, he found that stress was often a trigger for him. I'm actually pretty pretty amazed that he was able to abstain during his cancer treatment and during his time uh, following rehab. Mm -hmm. I actually have some concerns that if we don't intervene in some meaningful way, there might be potential for a relapse now. Um, the last relapse was eight years ago, so we've got a little bit of time. He's certainly about halfway through his, his longest stint. Um, my big concern, though, is that his main support system for this is the 12-step meeting. And without access to that, I'm worried that he's a little bit socially isolated. So, you know, his oncologist mentioned that there's a history of depression here, and he was aware of it, but he couldn't really separate it from his bouts of, his bouts of alcoholism. So I ran a best depression inventory with him. He does have some of the physical symptoms of depression, but a lot of those will fall uh, under the category of the cancer as well. You know, he's got the physical aches, but that could certainly be from the limb salvage. Um, he's got the fatigue, which certainly is possible that it's depression related, but he doesn't necessarily have a lot of the other psychosocial presence. He doesn't feel hopeless. He actually feels pretty optimistic, uh, almost unreasonably so, considering the lesions in his lungs. Um, I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, in terms of that social isolation, he had his, he had a wife, uh, they're still maintaining a cordial friendship is my understanding. Does anybody disagree or do you get, um, and he has a child, but they're, they're removed, they're on the West Coast. Um, my big concern, and maybe you can give me some insight about this, Rabbi, uh, his sponsor is his rabbi, and I understand that he has a close friendship with him as well. My concern from a social work perspective is that there are a lot of complicated dual roles there. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that uh, he welcomed another opportunity for a visit uh, when he comes to the clinic again by myself or another chaplain. But he was quite guarded. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's an issue of trust. Uh, he was trying to, like, size me up. Sure. If I'm going to be judgmental, am I going to go ahead and start the critical? Uh, what I would like to do is, and he gave me permission. Uh, to call his rabbi, that's he's uh, a community rabbi, get a better sense and maybe collaborate <laughs> between when he's at home and when he comes to the clinic or other opportunities. So uh, a complicated soul, definitely has a spirit to him, uh, struggles, uh, a lot of demons. Did you, did you get a sense that his relationship with his rabbi sponsor is um, mostly supportive and and uh, helping him maintain control over this behavior, the drinking behavior, where there's also a component of spiritual advisor or or someone to help him 
with faith issues. Yeah, I definitely felt that he was leaning on his rabbi's uh, friendship, uh, confidence, uh, and that's why I think uh, myself coming in as a stranger, as a new face, uh, he really has aligned himself with uh, his rabbi that he trusts. Yeah, that ambivalence makes sense to me. It really lines up with what I saw as well. I think it's probably also important to note that he's recently retired and he's in a hospitality job. He was working as a businessman and owner of a restaurant. I wonder how many of those friendships felt really critical while he was there and then turned out to be superficial and didn't last following his retirement. Mm -hmm. He might benefit from some sort of interpersonal psychotherapy. Um, just a little incidental, he smoked. Uh, his last cigarette was 12, month, uh, 12 years ago. Uh, he was reporting about a pack a day. Uh, and he's had some other occasional drug use, cannabis in his 20s and 30s. But you know, nothing problematic. Whenever one of our patients comes in and acknowledges an issue with substance use, we take a detailed substance use history. And one of the advantages of doing this as a team is that I, I know from experience that sometimes one of you will get some history that another one will not get. Um, did all of you find in your individual meetings with him that this history was, was consistent? He acknowledges the alcoholism, acknowledges the tobacco mm -hmm. abuse, a little bit of cannabis use, but says that there is no other substance use history that he that he engaged in. You found that as, as yeah, well, as yeah. Well. He was very open with his alcohol use and the history of, and very forthcoming with everything. So, he, as far as that history piece goes, I didn't feel get the impression that he was trying to hide or overshadow anything. And did he acknowledge any personal concerns about? The a relapse being imminent? Oh, uh, very much so. Very much so. Like uh, Sergio, he's surprised himself too that he hasn't. He's identified all his relapses around times of personal stress and that he hasn't relapsed at this point. You know, he attests to the support of the AA group and his rabbi, which brings up the concern that he's not able to get out of the house and reconnect with that support mechanism. So there's the worry of potential relapse. And I also note here that um, uh, his family history, which was on his intake form, showed that his mother died in an automobile accident and um, she was reportedly alcoholic. So he, he has very significant risk, risk factors for relapse mm -hmm. yeah. in the present. His father died from a myocardial infarction and he has a brother from whom he's estranged. So I think your um, your perception that these relationships that may have evolved during the long period of time as a restaurateur being superficial and not being very supportive, he has a history in his own personal life of not maintaining a strong relationship. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there are significant abandonment issues here. And I wonder if he sees some repeat action between his mother and that model of the motor vehicle accident in his own. So we had an opportunity, thank you all for, for working through these records and, and sharing what we found this morning. Um, we have a few minutes. The goal now is let's think about this in terms of the questions, the most prominent questions on the table. Um, how do we interpret what's going on from a medical and from a broader perspective? And then finally get to a, a plan of care that we want to communicate to the patient this afternoon. Uh, the hope is that the patient will engage with us that he'll have the support in doing that from the physician who referred him to us, the oncologist, who's obviously still very important to the patient, and um, and that we can hopefully get him to a better place uh, while um, while this period of time of dealing with pain and the potential for early recurrence and uh, ongoing problems with chemotherapy, while all of that plays out and we see where we end up. So the 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 first question we always ask ourselves after you know we spent so much time reviewing and working to get a, a good assessment in real time, but sometimes, as you all know, we walk into this room and we find out that there are big questions we forgot to ask or big things the patient neglected to tell us. In this particular case, are we in agreement that we have enough information right now to develop the plan of care? Mm -hmm. We all agree with that, okay. Um, and, and again, just acknowledging that even this afternoon when one, whomever whomever in this group calls him this afternoon, I know you'll flip a coin and decide. Um, if, if he uh, presents information that changes what we think about, we'll discuss him at our next IDT meeting later in the week. So we wanna talk about his pain, right? That's the chief complaint, that's the mm -hmm. referral question. We have to develop a plan of care that 
addresses what's going on with this pain, if we can clarify the nature of it and then how to treat it. And then um, I have a question that I want to address with you in part because I find myself having discussions with some of our oncology colleagues about who do they refer. And we now have referred to us someone who has a 60% chance of cure, essentially, long-term survival. And the question that I know I will be asked, and I'd like to have a consensus about it within our own group, is was that an appropriate referral? Is this the kind of patient that we want to encourage to be referred to us? So what is the role of the person who is nominally a survivor being referred to a palliative care specialty clinic? Uh, and then finally, as I said, we're going to get to a plan of care. Okay, so um, let's talk about pain. And uh, let, me, let me start first by asking the Dr. Lugasi to opine about the pain diagnosis and whether we have enough information to treat it. Sure, I, I think we do have uh, enough information. Now, of course, when anybody who has a, a history of cancer comes in with a pain, whether it's an ongoing pain or particularly in, in his case, a, uh, a new type of pain, the first thing we, we always want to think about is, is what's the cause? Is it a recurrence of the cancer? Is there some other disease-related complication or totally uh, uh, other cause uh, from a comorbidity? And I think fortunately in, in this case, um, his, uh, his other uh, medical specialists have done a pretty thorough workup um, to rule those things out of this case. So we know he doesn't have a recurrence of tumor. There's no signs of infection. There's no mechanical problems with the prosthesis. Um, at this point, you know, we're, we're sometime out um, from the initial surgery. Uh, the pain is, is not just ongoing, but, but worse at this point. So I think we're really dealing with a chronic uh, post-surgical pain syndrome at this point. And my sense is, and certainly he's at a higher risk for it, given the type of orthopedic surgery um, that he had. Um, and it's likely related to some injury, um, not just to the soft tissue, but um, to the nerves as well. That's likely resulting in, in his current pain syndrome. And as we've talked about with other cases, even the neuropathic component could be pretty complex, right? I mean, this patient may have a, a, a peripheral neuropathic pain from mm -hmm. peripheral nerve injury, or he may actually have a complex regional pain syndrome, uh, sympathetically maintained pain that might mm -hmm. be amenable to a nerve block. So I think one of the things that we'll get to in mm -hmm. seeing his initial response to the treatments that we work out today mm -hmm. is whether or not he may be somebody that we want to refer to our pain specialist mm -hmm. down the hall from us here right. for consideration of a nerve block. Mm -hmm. Exactly. He does have some physical findings that would, that would back that up. I mean, certainly he has a, the peripheral neuropathy, which is probably related to chemo, but then there's more, there's more focal pain, and it's uh, supported by the, the sensitivity of the scar, the color changes, the it's, swelling. It's something that we might be asked, and he might ask us, and, and the, even the oncologist might ask us, can he have a neuropathic pain even though there was no overt large nerve injury at the time of surgery? Uh, certainly. Yeah, just, just as a post-surgical syndrome, the nerves that are injured during the surgery through the normal process of an incision and whatever needs to be done can cause the neuropathic pain. Right. It's not uncommon for, for those causes to be, uh, to be overlooked in the, in the chronic period. And I would just mention, as, again, whoever calls him, that this comes up, sometimes our colleagues are, um, are challenge a patient because they say they, that the patient doesn't have a reason for the pain, so why are they hurting? Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure he faces some stigma due to history of abuse. Mm -hmm. Right. Anybody who looks at him is going to wonder, are you are you pain seeking or are you drug seeking? It's a substantial malingering case. Uh, it does sound like there are legitimate causes for the pain, not to mention the chemotherapy. That's right. And, mm -hmm. and in some ironic way, a person who has hyperesthesia around the scar and erythema around the scar gets validated because we're able to say to the oncologist, we're able to say you have physical findings that go along with neuropathic pain. And that's why you hurt. And that in itself might be reassuring whomever talks to him this afternoon. We're, we're quite sure that he's psychiatrically and psychosocially complex, but we're also quite sure there's something going on in his leg and his nervous system. Sure, and if anything, that complicates the, the psychosocial issues further. So let's focus in a little bit um, on the psychosocial factors. You know, sometimes we spend 
two minutes discussing the psychosocial factors in an IDT, and sometimes it's the whole IDT. This patient is definitely a complex soul, as you said, Charles. So um, can you, uh, I mean, let me just throw it out for discussion here. How do we want to think about a man with a history of substance use disorder, high risk for alcoholism, relapse, a history of depression, uh, now isolated, complex issues with his family, um, divorced, estranged from his, his son, um, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think primary, his depression, if there is a depression there, may be exacerbated by the pain and then may also exacerbate the pain. Exactly. Right, if, it, if he's socially isolated and there's nothing to distract him from the pain, then he can sit there and ruminate on the pain all day long, especially if he can't leave the house. He's used to a high, low, high stress work environment. That's gone now. So he's got some purposelessness there too. Um, in addition to that, you know, I mentioned the stigma, but I, I think it's worth mentioning that there is, you know, there is a chance of either medication diversion or medication overuse, but I don't necessarily see that with this patient. I think that, uh, you know, a real close interview with him reveals that he's, he's hopeful for the future. He wants to cure the cancer. He doesn't seem to be misusing his pain medications. Yeah. He has a good insight to his alcoholism, mm -hmm. which I think is a big plus in his favor for us not being so worried about drug addiction. Yeah. Um, but you brought up a big point about the pain and depression and isolation. Everything feeds into each other. So if he wasn't so isolated, the pain would not be as formal. But he's isolated. He's not able to get out and socialize. And with the support network so that all feeds into each other and just makes everything worse. And so what I'm hearing from you is that the, that the patient's psychological factors may be contributing to the pain intensity, making his pain worse. Absolutely. Contributing to the distress he has as a consequence of having pain, but also it's a, it, there are a series of comorbidities or comorbid factors related to his psychiatric and psychosocial uh, issues that can adversely impact on his functioning. Yeah. So we'll get we'll circle back in a few minutes and come up with a plan of care based on the complexity of that uh, assessment. But um, before we do that, let me let me digress for a second because I know this is going to come up in, uh, in in the coffee that I have scheduled with the oncologist this very afternoon. The oncologist is going to want to know whether or not this referral was appropriate. I know he views it as a little bit of an experiment. He could have referred this patient to the pain specialist down the hallway from us, but opted not to because he perceived that the patient's complexity was not um, the psychosocial complexity and the history of substance abuse in the context of a cancer history with, with presumably stable disease in the chest. He thought that that situation spoke to possibly palliative care, but he's quite concerned that, he, that we are not appreciative of this type of patient. And as a result of that, I think uh, one of the th reasons he wanted to meet this afternoon is just to get feedback on whether he should do this again. So please give me your feedback about whether or not this referral for palliative care of the survivor population is uh, something that we should uh, consider appropriate or not. I think it's completely appropriate. Um, palliative care at its essence is really an interdisciplinary approach to management of symptoms and, and, and other multidimensional issues in the setting of a serious illness really at any point in the illness, whether it's the beginning, middle, or, or late stage, and, and the patient does have a history of cancer, and he's still, even though he's had a surgery, um, he's had treatment, he's still at a point in his illness. It's just at a different point than referrals most commonly come forth. So for that reason, I think it's really, and certainly he can, he can benefit um, from, from our interdisciplinary approach. So I think it's very appropriate. Yeah, I, because he's so complicated. Uh, he's, I think, from my uh, short uh, uh, encounter uh, with this damn man, he's looking for a holistic approach. He's not looking for compartments. He, he sees himself being rehabilitated. And the only way he could kind of be rehabilitated is by having disciplines support him on this path. I mean, we brought up this idea of hope. I mean, maybe a little unrealistic, but fears of may, he, he wants to live. Mm -hmm. So what better 
kind of uh, approach and a team approach to say, yeah, we could deal with your pain, we could deal with psychosocial, we could deal with spiritual, we could deal with rehab, we have volunteers, we, you know, we, we could kind of broaden his socialization and get him into a community. He's at home, but we could create a small community for him. Absolutely. I think it's also good to note with the stable disease, cancer survivors live with a tremendous amount of anxiety for years and sometimes decades. And if we're thinking about a mind-body connection, that anxiety can continue to manifest and further exacerbate pain. I think that by intervening in a multidisciplinary way now, we may create some, some real resiliency factors for him going forward as he approaches treatment. So I very much appreciate the input. Uh, what I had uh, determined even before the patient came is that we now have about 5% of the U.S. population as cancer survivors. So we're talking about uh, a huge potential population uh, that that uh, may have problems appropriate for palliative care specialists. Uh, and that the survivors, the studies that have been done today show that the survivors have high rates of physical and psychosocial symptoms and functional impairment. A, late, uh, a very recent uh, epidemiologic study suggested that 40% of survivors have chronic pain. So it's a common, common problem. Obviously not always as complex as this patient, uh, and not always in patients who have um, persistence or the threat of persistent disease hanging over their head, but a common problem nonetheless and a large number of patients in the survivor population. And, and I think as, uh, as Dr. Lugasi pointed out, because, uh, and, uh, and Rabbi Verdansky pointed out, because we treat multiple sources of illness, burden, and suffering, and we view conceptually palliative care as starting at the time of diagnosis, this isn't a leap for us. I wanted to be able to tell the oncologist that it may be unusual for you to make this referral, but conceptually, this is not a leap for us. This is the way we think about uh, specialist palliative care. It's not based on where in the disease a patient is. It's based on the complexity of the problems the patient has. And if the, if the, if the problems are complex enough to require a specialist team, then in an ideal setting, in an ideal world, they ought to have access to a specialist team. Uh, and this and this patient, as you've all pointed out, really uh, exemplifies that that kind of situation. He's extremely uh, complex because of the risk of disease progression and an array of physical, psychosocial, and spiritual concerns. And um, and for that reason, even before you all weighed in, I was going to make the case: identify other people like this in your in your practice, talk to your colleagues, and let's collaborate more and more on on palliative care upstream. Uh, even even patients soon after diagnosis, if they present with this complex array of problems that we can help. Mm -hmm. I see you all nodding, and yeah. you're making me feel good. <laughs> well, even, that's what we're here for. Yeah. Well, even if we had started the palliative care process when he got to the rehab facility, yeah. that may have sped up his recovery a little bit and his recovery yeah, he might have greater function, yeah. as opposed to waiting this period of time from when he left to now. Okay, so that, that was a really helpful uh, digression and gave me the, the, the tools I need to continue the, to push the oncologist to do the right thing for their patients. Uh, but now we have to decide what to do with this patient. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you all decide in the last 20 seconds telepathically who would call the patient? Or are you going to flip a coin, four-way coin? I'll call the patient. Adam Schoenbarber is going to call the patient. And, um, and I don't think it's going to be that easy because we you know, he's obviously looking for pain control, mm. and we have a strategy for that, I think. We'll come up with one in a minute or so, but we want to, I think you will agree, we would like to propose to him a plan of care that addresses more than just the pain and to try to prevent relapse of his alcoholism and get him moving toward a much stronger functional gains and a better quality of life. And I don't know, in my experience, probably yours as well, when people have a lot of symptoms of stress, sometimes it's too much when you say, here's the menu of what we want to do, and they just care about getting the pain under control. Mm -hmm. So we may want to think about an early return visit for him after we make an, an initial uh, treatment uh, strategy for his pain, and hopefully he'll feel better and could hear more if he comes back. Yeah. So let's talk about um, pain first, and then we can talk about other issues. I do want to uh, jump in before you all tell me the plan, and just point out uh, that uh, you probably remember that 
Um, we recently distributed the new evidence-based guidelines from the American Society of Clinical Oncology about pain in the survivor population. So it's a pretty interesting coincidence that we now get this referral. Um, he's he's uh, nominally a survivor, even though he may have uh, he may have persistent disease, um, and he's got chronic pain like 40% of the population does. And ASCO did a good job in pulling together an expert panel and doing a, a systematic review of the literature and coming up with guidelines. And um, you you probably um, remember, and I'll just summarize this so we're on the same page, that the ASCO guidelines say that the survivor population has to be considered a special population. It's not like every other population. And it's because of that potential for recurrence that, you know, Adam, you articulated this anxiety that the disease could come back or progress at any point. It creates a context for living with pain or addressing pain therapeutically that other populations don't have. They, these patients also have a high prevalence of multiple chronic physical and psychosocial problems related to cancer treatment, like this patient has. Um, and it also, ironically, at the same time that those concerns are front and center, this is a population for whom many uh, will have a long life expectancy and perhaps even cure, which will become apparent as the years go by. And because the, because the period of treatment of pain is so prolonged, the risk-benefit calculus that has to be done in thinking about whether to use relatively risky treatments like opioids is different than when you're thinking about the patient with advanced illness. And this guideline made a big point about when you think about introducing chronic opioid therapy for the treatment of persistent pain. And it basically said that, that non-pharmacological approaches, non-opioid drugs, and topical agents should be considered first, and opioids should only be considered after a very careful assessment of risk and, risk and burden on the one hand, benefit on the other hand, and prior treatment effects um, is done in order to try to minimize the risks associated with long-term opioid therapy. And it also made a point, which I think is now being made more and more in the population with chronic pain like low back pain and headache, that all of these patients need a universal precautions approach with respect to substance abuse outcomes. And the universal precautions approach speaks to stratifying patients by risk of abuse, addiction, and diversion. And here we have in this man agreement among all of us that he's at high risk to develop a relapse of alcoholism. And then if he develops an addictive pattern of abuse of alcoholism, the use of opioids will be less safe. And he has the risk of developing an addictive pattern of use of the opioid. So I think the question is, what's our plan of care after doing a risk-benefit analysis in this particular case, noting that our upfront assessments of his risks are relatively high with respect to these substance abuse outcomes? So let me ask you about that. We have to come up with a plan for his pain. Dr. Lugasi, what would you think? So, so in terms of the, the, the management of, of the physical pain, and I also just want to emphasize that even the management of the physical pain is really going to involve an interdisciplinary approach, uh, allowing him to continue on with his physical therapy, bringing in all the disciplines, because the other psychosocial issues are going to affect and inform the way he participates in his treatment plan and his response to it. That being said, if we look at the risk-benefit profile of, of chronic opioids, I'd like to start managing his pain with uh, another regimen at this point. We can't totally stop his opiates right now. He's been taking them for some time. He's been taking them multiple doses a day. Um, there's likely some degree of physical dependence. Doesn't mean he's addicted, but there's some physical dependence, so we're not going to immediately stop them. But looking at, at his regimen, he's on ibuprofen right now. He's probably getting at least some benefit from that. And there's some room to still go up on that. Um, he's at 2,400 right now, so we can go up to 3,200 um, as some adjuvant treatment. In addition, I'd like to think about starting him on another medication to control the pain. And based on the evidence and, and the type of pain that he has, likely neuropathic and nociceptive, I think a trial of duloxetine um, would be a good first option. We could also consider something for neuropathic pain like gabapentin as well. So I would just suggest starting with one of those um, 
titrating that upward um, as much as he can tolerate and see if he gets relief with that. Mm -hmm. um, if after we try these things, pain is still having a significant effect on his quality of life and functional pattern, we could consider an opiate at that point. And just to be um, specific about it, um, I know we always talk about analgesic antidepressants and the gabapentinoids like gabapentin mm -hmm. as the two first-line categories for for pain, uh, for adjuvant analgesic therapy mm -hmm. for pain that's refractory to an opioid that we're using instead of an opioid. And, you know, the books say that if the patient has any comorbid depression, we tend to use the antidepressants first. And if they don't have comorbid depression, then the gabapentinoids, gabapentin and pregabalin may be a little safer, easier to titrate. Um, so in this case, it's hard because I think, Adam, uh, your evaluation suggested that he's not clinically depressed. Um, he has a history of depression. He's certainly distressed, but he's not clinically depressed. So is it a coin toss or should we start with the duloxetine in the hope that it'll get some positive effect on mood or how would you think about the two categories? You know, I also look at the, the side effect profiles as well. Um, I think I would move more towards the duloxetine in this point in particular, that one, if you titrate up the gabapentin, you can get a little dizziness, a little unsteadiness with it as well. And given that his mm -hmm. gait is a little bit unsteady as well, I think it's going to move more towards the, the duloxetine. And I also know, um, you know, based on the guidelines from ASCO, mm -hmm. uh, they specifically talked about topical therapies, and he's got this regional pain. Right. I had thought about that, but when I examined him, um, it's really diffuse throughout the whole. If it were more focal, that may actually be my, my starting line, but given the, the, actually the, the geographic distribution of the pain, I think it's probably too extensive at this point for topical. And you would continue his, um, his PRN access to acetaminophen and oxycodone, but control the dose very carefully control the number of tablets and try to get him, try to support him in taking less. Correct. The assumption with, that we don't want him on opioid therapy. And right, with the goal of ultimately tapering him off that, if, if, if and, I, and I'll just ask one other question because he's got this history of drug abuse. If the initial therapy doesn't work, we know from our pain specialist down the hallway that he could get a nerve block. And some, you know, based on our experience, I think had he gone to the nurse, the pain specialist first, he would have had a nerve block as mm -hmm. the first line therapy, right? right? Mm -hmm. But so we could send him for a nerve block at that point, or we could provide him with an opioid with less abuse liability, like like the transdermal buprenorphine mm -hmm. uh, therapy that we have sometimes been using in patients like this, or even low dose methadone therapy mm -hmm. that. Um, I think anecdotally, at least, it, it makes us more comfortable that mm -hmm. it's a less abusable option. So, how would you think about those options? Would you want to? Would you want us to follow up, and then if his pain continues to worsen or he's not doing well generally, get him over for a nerve block, or shall we think about an opioid trial uh, as a as the next step before doing anything in, invasive? I, I think we, we still have some room for, for reassessment first on, on the regimen that we're putting into place. Um, I would probably see him back quite soon, perhaps continue to type, uh, titrate up um, the antidepressants. Um, and then at that point, I might consider a referral for a nerve block. And, and uh, Rabbi Charles, you are going to reach out to his rabbi. Yeah, absolutely. How's that going to end up in our plan of care? Just I'm curious. Well, I, I was just thinking and listening to uh, the doc that <clears throat> I shared with uh, uh, our, our uh, dear man that uh, Maimonides, the great scholar, uh, went ahead and said one of the great barriers, uh, and he was a doctor himself, uh, one of the great barriers to serving God or to do to embrace life or community is illness slash pain. And he appreciated that because he's, you know, he saw a clergy person kind of recognize that it's not just going to the spiritual part, but recognizing that if we could help with the pain. So what I would like to do is uh, collaborate with a rabbi who might not necessarily uh, be up to date with exactly the level of pain and the intensity of what this person is going through, and then try to uh, 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 collaborate as the pain subsides with a spiritual plan. Mm -hmm. 
And also, while you're doing that, unless you think that this is a mistake given the dual roles, we all think he's got high risk for relapse, and he hasn't been to meetings. And uh, the sponsor has a, just as you know, when sponsors are not your rabbi, sponsors generally have a big role to play in just this situation when patients may be teetering on the verge of relapse. They they may reach out to the sponsor, or the sponsor may reach out to them. That's the lifeline. And I think we all feel some real concern that this patient needs a lifeline with respect to the alcoholism. So if we could integrate that into the plan of care, he has to get out to his meetings. It's very important for him to reconnect with that community that he's found support with in the past. And that right now is the socialization. So the sponsor would be able to help navigate that and come up with some creative solutions to help get him reconnected with that community. And any other thoughts about where he is psychiatrically or psychosocially? There's obviously lots that could be done. Mm -hmm. Do you think you want to introduce some of that in the plan of care at this point? Sure. Well, I think that it would be really important to approach him with a harm reductive stance. I think that if we can come in, validate the pain that he's experiencing, normalize the fact that he may not have been taken seriously, he'll, I think that may break down some of those walls and barriers that we have for trust. Um, and I think that that can help move us towards a larger community setting, right? Engaging with the AA team, um, engaging with his rabbi, maybe looking into some other cancer support groups. Um, so when he comes back to clinic, you would like to see him? Absolutely. I think it may also benefit us to do a cage assessment with him, which is an alcohol screen that's used for multiple substances at this point, uh, just to see if there's been any chance of relapse. So this is something that's a, a bit odd because you all are here at, in clinic doing an IDT on a patient you saw this morning, but I have the ability through our IDT time machine actually to move us ahead five months. And uh, I just did that. You didn't experience it, but it just happened. And I want to provide you with some follow-up of what happened with our plan of care during the past five months. Um, as Dr. Lugasi advised, the patient did have trials of higher dose ibuprofen, duloxetine, and gabapentin, and unfortunately, none of them worked. Good, good thinking, though. They just didn't work. And then the patient was switched uh, from acetaminophen oxycodone and was actually treated. Um, we decided as a team, and I, I think you were instrumental in this, in deciding that a patch with a three-day interval would be least likely to sort of sort of engage him with pill-taking behavior and you wanted to do something that didn't have any pills and so we started him on a on a small fentanyl patch it was titrated to 50 mics an hour and he's much much more comfortable mm -hmm. and so that's yeah. a good thing he's much more comfortable he was advised to attend AA meetings and to have individual psychotherapy and he did so and the real good news I think for now today five months into his treatment is that he has not relapsed he is still working with the sponsor, and um, I think we can all take some pride in that because I think we all felt his vulnerability when, when he first came mm -hmm. to clinic. He continued physical therapy, and he's walking better. Uh, the, the more challenging uh, realization for him and for his treatment team is that the lesions in his lung are getting bigger. Uh, they're still too small. Uh, for the oncologist to deal with them as primary problems, and his last PET scan was otherwise negative. So he is presumed to have um, slowly progressive local disease. Uh, in other words, he is not cured. And, uh, and he and his oncologist are essentially waiting for the other shoe to drop. His lesions could pick up uh, and grow more rapidly in his lung, or he could develop metastatic disease in other places. Uh, but he's not a candidate at this point for the next line of chemotherapy or any other treatment because the lesions are still so small and asymptomatic. Um, if you ask him how he's doing, he acknowledges that he's better, but he is far from happy. He says his quality of life is fair. Uh, you remember that five months ago, he said he had a miserable existence. So he's moved from miserable existence to fair. So I think that's always an issue for us who want to do well. Are we happy with that or not? And at that, I think what we're going to do is stop and open our, uh, open our case up for questions and answers from any of the people who might have been listening to us uh, discuss the IDT or the follow-up comment. I'll give you a, a second now to um, write your questions down. Now, here's a question. 
um, and it's a really good one. Um, we're just, we described a plan of care that is resource intense. And the questioner wants to know if we are really going to open up palliative care upstream to people with complex problems in the survivor population, do we really have the resources to think about providing interdisciplinary care at the level that we're talking about today to a larger population? And what about the cost of what we're doing, even for the patient, this patient, in terms of paying for clinic visits and other treatments because of our the intensity and the complexity of the care plans that we put together as palliative care specialists? That's a good question. Anybody want to answer that? Well, I think palliative care has grown so much in just the past few years, and we're continuing to expand and grow. So as the understanding and the use of palliative care grows, the, the infrastructure will continue to grow, and we're constantly working with the, um, the governments to, to change the, the reimbursement schedule and improve on that so side as well. So you are really an optimist. <laughs> hey, you <laughs> Which know, is good, I guess. So we've, come, we've come this far in, in just a short period of time. I just see it moving forward as as we go, continuing to grow and change. And sometimes really tiny, itsy baby steps, but sometimes not so much. So what I'm, if I, the way I would translate that yeah. for me is I would say, um, let's keep doing what we're doing. And mm -hmm. if it's, it occurs that we lack the resources to do the same thing, we'll evolve to something different. Mm -hmm. But right now we have the resources. And although there's always an issue of what a patient can pay, this is all, all of healthcare. We'll offer the best plan of care we can and try to help patients engage in the best plan of care they can afford. And that's part of what we do. That's what I would say. Do you agree with that? I agree. And I think it'll be, it'll be helpful going forward to develop some guidelines for referral, referral sources to, mm -hmm. for palliative care so that they can really select who are the patients who would most benefit um, from the interdisciplinary approach so they're not uh, under-referring yeah. certain populations, and then on the other side, they're not over-referring. Over That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and here's a, another question. There is a good literature in the role of social engagement and self-efficacy as mediating variables in pain perception in chronic pain patients. The questioner asks, I wonder if, in addition to getting the patient to engage in AA and support group and psychotherapy, another consideration for similar patients is to identify their strengths, hobbies, and joys in life and support them in ways to engage sources of meaning in their lives unrelated to the cancer and pain. Mm -hmm. So that's that's good advice. Absolutely. And we should just vote yes on that, right? Yeah. 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 That's the answer. Yeah. We vote yes. Yeah. And, and here's another question, uh, and this I think will be our last question, um, and it's a practical one. If we do want to taper the patients off the opioid, and remember this patient is being tapered off an opioid in the context of having pain, uh, how do we do that? And how do we deal with the reality that some patients will develop abstinence symptoms, some patients will develop worsening pain, in some cases the worsening pain is because of the abstinence, and it's definitely a challenge, and I think uh, this questioner is asking um, asking some question about how best to do that. Well, I think that that all dovetails with the last question, right? We have somebody who has already weaned themselves off of something, right? We can use the strengths that this patient has already exhibited and the self-determination that they've exhibited and their motivation to change to try and roll forward to either cope with that pain if it continues to exist or just cope with some of those symptoms of abstinence. And pharmacologically, I agree with that 100%. You have to try to give people both the support and also some tools to use mm -hmm. to try to manage pain non-pharmacologically. And then from a pharmacological perspective, the important thing would be to try to minimize abstinence because abstinence sort of withdrawal can just make the baseline pain worse. This patient could have a flare in the pain in his leg pain, and you're thinking, oh, this is this person really needs the opioid, but it's the withdrawal from the opioid that's causing the pain to get worse, not the fact that he has baseline pain that would persist if the opioid were taken away. So you have to try to prevent the abstinence, and, and we have a number of pharmacological tricks to do that, like the 
like a switch from one opioid to another so that we can use incomplete cross tolerance to get the dose of the second opioid down. We're using drugs that are not opioids to blunt the symptoms of withdrawal. Mm -hmm. We're using a drug like clonidine to actually treat withdrawal uh, itself. Those are the those are the tricks, and I and I I think we would all agree, given how fragile and vulnerable he is psychologically, the last thing we want to do is also toss him into withdrawal. Someone like him will really need some anticipatory guidance so that he can recognize that if you taper him off those symptoms, so he knows about them, so he can he can tell us, and he doesn't automatically start self-medicating. So I'm looking at the time and realizing that the hour has flown by. I want to thank you all for attending this webinar. The next webinar uh, that we will be presenting will be the third professor's round. This will be presented by Dr. Joan Tino, who is a professor at the University of Washington in the Division of Gerontology and Geriatric Medicine. Uh, Joan will be uh, presenting the lecture, Embracing the Complexity of End-of-Life Care, what advanced, when advanced directives are not enough. That webinar, that professor's rounds, will take place on Thursday, August 3rd at 4 p.m. I also would like to remind you all to complete your evaluations so that you can, you can get a continuing education credit. And uh, thank you all again for attending.